This is Side B of episode number 73 of The Extra Environmentalist, and we're speaking with David Blacker about his book, The Falling Rate of Learning. For Side A's conversation with Frank Rotering on a contractionary revolution, please turn the tape over. definitely in that spirit of being the extra environmentalists and not taking on the mantle of, of some kind of Middle East expert, because I'm certainly not that. So these are the impressions of, uh, of a traveler who's um, uh, interested and somewhat informed about things, but but certainly not, not uh, portraying himself as an expert, you know. So I was there for about three weeks. It was a personal visit. I was not really in a, a tourist bubble like in a hotel, you know. Um, though I did do some tourist stuff, like you got to go see the pyramids, right? When you're when when you're visiting Egypt uh, for the first time, uh, as everyone there uh, emphasized. By the way, you know, I was living in a neighborhood uh, called Mahdi, um, which is a sort of large area. Uh, in the southern part of Cairo, kind of mixed. There's kind of some wealthier areas, some expat areas, but also some um, you know poor areas, some areas that are Islamist uh, strongholds uh, even. But uh, but that was the area I was in. But I certainly traveled a lot around Cairo uh, itself, Greater Cairo, and the rest of the country in various ways. And gee, I, I just got back uh, uh, Monday. Um, uh, we're recording this on what is it Thursday? Um, so it's still fresh in my mind. Just a few days. And, wow! And so I, you just I, got I, back then. You're just fresh yeah. off the plane. Yeah. In fact, I'm still oddly adjusting from a little jet lag. It's seven hours uh, later there, so I'm kind of readjusting still a little bit. Uh, the sort of grand finale for me were the last few days. Um, the lead up to the 25th, which is a huge day because, as you mentioned, that's the anniversary of the 2011 revolution. And so we're now on the three-year anniversary. Um, and uh, there have been some really uh, wrenching changes that have gone on there. The lead up to this year's revolution was was quite uh, unique in a lot of ways. And those two days leading up, the 20, Friday the 24th and then Saturday the 25th, were really very eventful, uh, overly eventful for my taste, uh, frankly. Um, so, for example, uh, Friday morning at 6.30 a.m. local time, I was literally awakened by a terrorist bomb blast that uh, I heard while I was, uh, I was sort of in that state of kind of just waking up, but I, I heard the whole thing. And my first thought was, Gee, what a what a big thunderstorm is coming! And then I remembered where I was. <laughs> you know, this is Cairo. It, it rains less than an inch a year uh, there. This is not a thunderstorm. It's seventy degrees and sunny every single day. You know, this time of year, um, that's no thunderstorm. And gee, I tell you, uh, it was the first time for me I, I had ever directly been in the line of perception of something like a terrorist attack or a bombing or something. And even though it was a few miles away, it was. You could just kind of tell it sounded wrong. It was this loud rumble that just sort of lasted a little longer than any rumble ought to last, if that makes any sense. And immediately, as a good uh, citizen of the world, maybe as a good extra environmentalist, I should say, what do you do? You get on Twitter, right? And so, <laughs> you know, trying to find the appropriate hashtags for things. And 
just like here. But you could have found out the information sitting here in the States or Canada just as well as in Cairo or in that na very neighborhood because everyone goes on Twitter to try to find out what's going on. And so when it became clear that this was a huge bombing that attacked essentially a police headquarters. And it turned out actually quite severely damaged the contents of a a museum of uh, Islamic art, um, ironically, given the allegedly Islamist uh, nature of the, the attackers, which were essentially an Al-Qaeda-affiliated group uh, out of the Sinai, uh, which is what they seem to be at this point. But anyway, that was that was my morning. Um, and then it went downhill from there. Um, so about four or five people were killed in that bombing and uh, many, many more injured, like 70 plus were injured. Um, and then there were a series of bombings around the city and around the, the uh, country that day. Um, again, this is that run up to the 25th uh, anniversary. And it was uh, mostly these were targeting uh, police stations and the like. So um, but there were uh, also uh then the next day, uh, there were a series of demonstrations, and there are basically three factions right now uh, in play in terms of, uh, uh, and this was very much on display on the 25th. One is the uh, military faction, and uh, to make a long story short, the, the military uh, faction, which I think probably actually is most of the country right now, is at least the majority of the country. Certainly the plurality, I think probably the majority, is behind this, this uh, guy named General Sisi, who comes out of the ranks of the uh, defense ministry and intelligence and so on. I almost The closest analogy I can think of would be like a Vladimir Putin type of figure. Um, you know, he kind of rises out of the intelligence branches and so on, but he's the object of just a, a huge cult of almost worship of Sisi. There's CC products everywhere. You see his name, banners, his picture, wearing sunglasses. And by the way, I came to feel that uh, as a general rule of thumb, uh, when, when they start showing pictures of your future leader wearing sunglasses, that's never a good sign. I, you know, um, that just seems dictator to me, you know, sunglasses, <laughs> something about that image. But anyway, you can buy chocolates, uh, uh, meals. They, they even were selling underwear with CC on the underwear. You know, just Egyptian flags everywhere. This huge, huge sort of outpouring of, of very, very in-your-face nationalist uh, sentiment. And so anyway, there's that group. And they were the ones who had kind of, you know, we all remember the images from 2011 on Tahrir Square with the activists. And it was such this hopeful uh, moment. And... Uh, and may, maybe some have seen um, the documentary The Square um, on Netflix, which I, I would uh, highly recommend, which I actually saw in uh, Egypt, which was interesting because it's censored there. But long story involving a proxy server and so on, we were able to actually watch it there, which was which is kind of cool and felt very uh, subversive. Um, so you're but, you're actually interacting with some of the people there on the ground who actually live through on this kind of terroristic uh uh, playground and also with with these dictators at, at the same time, did they they give you a sense that this is a, this is a being like a a normal kind of thing like the 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 terrorist bombing and and like the products of General CC rising in popularity? Is it, was this is this kind of a normal day to day life for them? 
Uh, no, I wouldn't say it's normal, but if, if it might be in a way normal for the last three years, because the last two years have been really, really traumatic. Um, and, you know, one if I had to pick one thing that I learned from talking to people there, uh, both uh, Egyptians and also expats and others who have, who have lived there for a long time in many cases, the one thing that I, that I learned that I think I, I haven't uh, seen really given its due in the media, even many good accounts of, of what's going on, is how traumatizing the last two years have been for people there. Um, and so, you know, if we're talking about revolution in general here, I mean, one 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 lesson that I take, and if we go back to January uh, 2011, you know, the 25th and subsequent days and weeks after that, culminating in the ouster of uh, the Mubarak, who was the the dictator then, who had been dictator for like 30 years. Um, you know, one thing that happened that we were all captivated by were the the way at first the police were you know, really, really abusing the demonstrators, right? And one famous image was when they rode camels in and were whipping and, and messing with people. There were, there, were people they, there were people killed by police and, you know, all kinds of things. And so the police became a real object of protest, understandably so, right? Because the police were the direct sort of proximate antagonists. But what happened, though, when it became clear that the military was going to back the protesters, and that was sort of the decisive moment, and it was a very emotional moment for many Egyptians, these images of the, you know, the tanks coming in and the people cheering and embracing the soldiers and, you know, the people in the army are one one hand. There was all this kind of rhetoric and the army saying that we would never shoot on the people. But the antagonist there was the police, right, as opposed to the army. And so... The thing that I hadn't realized is that once it was clear that this was the shape of, of things in the immediate aftermath of the Ouster Mubarak, what happened was the police withdrew because they, you know, I think felt that they were going to be lynched by the people, by uh, uh, down too, huh? Yeah, no, absolutely at that point. And so the military withdrew. And so in some respects, in retrospect, even though in the euphoria of the moment, it was perhaps missed, especially by external observers. It sort of becomes a be careful what you wish for because you might get it situation in which the police were the object. It's sort of go away police. We don't want you police anymore oppressing us. And guess what? They did go away. But that created a horrific situation throughout uh, Cairo and the rest of the country. Just imagine it. The police all of a sudden are gone. And so what happened is people, people had, were barricading their streets. The streets weren't safe. There are roving bands of, of thugs and looters, and uh, uh, prisons were uh, prisoners were released from prisons. You know, there's ordinary uh, violent criminals. Um, people were. Wait, so you're saying the, the prisons are shutting down? Some of them were at least um, the ones. And this is again from what I hear from from people who lived in these neighborhoods. You know, you can imagine that kind of atmosphere. People were literally barricading their doors. You know, in their uh, flats, their apartments, and so on. You know, this is this, uh, and not to mention basic other services like uh, garbage, and which is a challenge at, even at the best of times uh, in Cairo. You know, water, there were electricity cuts, internet cuts, uh, you know, just basic stuff was, was all of a sudden at risk. Um, but the first of those, maybe it's sort of a Maslow's hierarchy kind of thing, just safety, right? Personal safety, the sense of all of a sudden. There's no one there at all. You're just completely on your own. And so, 
you know, at least one lesson, at least immediate lesson I take is that, gee, that, that's a really, really tough situation. You know, uh, you know, if, you, if the police are your antagonist and then you triumph and then you have no ability to sort of see toward basic public order, uh, public safety, um, you could be out of the frying pan into the fire rather quickly. And I think many people in, in uh, Egypt, especially in Cairo, felt that way. And so the last three years, that phenomenon, everyone looks back to that as the worst period, the period right after the 2011 revolution, as the worst period because of that withdrawal of police. And I think from talking to people, and gosh, so many people were of such of the same mind from different social classes, different walks of life. So many people were of the same mind on this topic that, you know, I think people were so deeply traumatized by that period that that was a large reason psychologically why they are willing to embrace essentially a military dictatorship at this at this point in time. Um, you know, sort of anything but that. Anything almost is preferable to, you know, it's kind of like Germany in the 20s, you know, with the economic economic chaos and depression in the 20s and classic fascist scenario, right? You clamp, people often clamor for the, the man on the white horse to come in and set things straight. And I think that's what we're seeing in, in Egypt right now with this incredible cult of personality and, and uh, just, uh, you know, ebullient uh, sort of love for, for Sisi um, and, and um, you know, his pledge to uh, eliminate terrorism, which comes in the form of cracking down on the Muslim Brotherhood, which is the second big faction, which was actually in charge with the election of Morsi last uh, couple year, last year, and then he was ousted um, in the second wave of of revolutionary protests. Um, so anyway, they they declared officially a terrorist organization, the Muslim Brotherhood, and in fact, the state TV there refers to them very Orwellian, you know, in a way as the uh, terrorist brotherhood. You know, in so fact, they how even, is it that the people yeah. don't really even see that this is just an, like you know another, just another figurehead, another uh, chair on the Titanic, just being moved around a little bit? You know, how do they not see that this is just the, the latest trend? Do, do, it's, I mean, a, it's a tough question. First of all, I think some people see this, and well, certainly the Brotherhood members see it. Um, but now, and they're quite the hunted group now, and you know, they're no. They had their chance of power, and they were just as repressive, if, if not more so, when they were in charge. So it's hard to feel a huge amount of sympathy with them uh, and their general critique. But there's the third faction, which are kind of the secular, leftist, liberal revolutionaries, the people that are featured in the film The Square, at least two of the three of them, and um, the, the especially disproportionately young uh, types. They certainly see it, and they represent right at the moment, a, a somewhat small and I think somewhat beleaguered faction that is saying, you know, everyone, we should take a st step back here and say no to both military fascism and Islamicist fascism. So there are some people, there is a group, there is one faction, and they have their own demonstrations, and they are refused to affiliate with the Muslim Brotherhood at this point and with the military uh, CC sort of cult of, of uh, adulation. So there are some people there. There's a faction that certainly sees it very clearly and is saying this. If you go on Twitter, hashtag Egypt, I'll encourage everyone to do some field work. You know, you'll, you'll see this point of view quite clearly from people there. Um, but I think, you know, my explanation for the the bulk of the population is, uh, and again, I don't know about opinion polling and so on. This is just my sense from from being there. 
uh, when I say bulk of the population, I my answer is that people were so traumatized with the volatility, the instability, the chaos that it's a really, really powerful drive to want to just kind of get back to some stability. And if your choice is between, okay, there's some journalists being arrested and there's some freedom of speech issues, uh, you got to accept that in order to have basic social stability and ability to make a living for your family, uh, then I think, uh, unfortunately, most people really are. And so it's understandable. I say unfortunately, but it's understandable if you were really in that situation. I think most people are choosing the bread uh, argument. And and it's that same trend, as you brought up, that you, know, you see in Nazi Germany and what ended up happening there. We can look in on, on the horrors and be absolutely disgusted by it. But you're talking about this situation in Egypt where after the revolution, society just absolutely became unstable. And so you have this scenario where people support these things that maybe in a different economic situation, a different time, they wouldn't support that leader. They wouldn't support those ideas uh, because of perhaps the long-term trend and the threatening things that are happening. Yeah, it's sort of a sort of a shock doctrine scenario. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's mm-hmm. what it's bringing up for me. And it brings up a lot of the themes in your book, The Falling Rate of Learning. And I wanted to get into some of the ideas in that and how this trip in Egypt and seeing a lot of the ideas that you're talking about in the book on you know neoliberal eliminationism essentially reforms and the things that are happening to the education system in the United States where maybe in a, in another time it would be very difficult to have these kinds of changes going on in the school system where they're all becoming you know very much privatized adapting these models that are taught in MBA schools and are the ideas of CEOs brought into the education environment because of essentially a lot of our economic situation these kinds of of long-term negative trends can be put in place could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, things? sure. And I and I can try to even make a as unlikely as it sounds. I think I, I can even try to make a little bit of a transition from the Egypt stuff to the, you know, critique of uh, school uh, schooling policy and so on that I have in my book. Um, and that is one of the main drivers of the 2011 revolution, the overthrow of Mubarak in Egypt in the first place, is this disproportionate sort of demographic youth bubble that they have in the Middle East generally and in Egypt uh, as well. And unemployment is extremely, extremely high. It's a very poor country to begin with, and life is precarious uh, by Western standards, certainly to begin with, and extremely large uh, unemployment, uh, extremely large and seemingly growing uh, youth population that doesn't see itself as having a place in the economy. You know, in the normal economy, and sees itself as not having a future under under present uh, conditions, and so that group. That group, by the way, even if they've got their dictatorship, that group is not going away. And so you have a structural situation in which they're going to be bound to stay restive. And so we, we haven't heard the last from Egypt yet because that group isn't going away. And that's going to still be a, a cause of huge instability, maybe even overthrow of this regime uh, next. Um, but that same group, I think, is is uh, uh, perhaps the leading edge of what we're seeing around the globe, including uh, domestically here in North America with the youth population. This, what I call in the book, eliminationism, which I see as a, as a, as a unfortunate and depressing feature of, of, of uh, today's capitalism, 
which has many causes, which I, I try to address in, in the book. But essentially the idea being that because of uh, changes in the nature of productivity uh, due to automation, technology, and so on and so forth, uh, less and less uh, labor is needed. You know, um, it's not like previous years in capitalism, in which, uh, which I call sort of the all-hands-on-deck phase of capitalist production, in which large-scale enterprises needed all the labor that was available. You know, we welcome mass influxes of immigrants and so on. Uh, more, the more the better to join in production and so on and, and add value to production and uh, help create profits in that way. But I think due to productivity increases, automation, et cetera, to make a long story short, um, there's less and less of a place for more and more people uh, in the economy, and of course, the youth generation is—is—are is, they're the ones that are facing this most directly? Education is a way that people point to to kind of counteract this, to help to move people into a place where they can innovate more. That these are keywords to grow the economy with more uh, learned people. You know, move move women into mathematics, move children into science to help boost the economy. I just heard the uh, State of the Union address last night. And Barack Obama's talking about the same old things, you know, grow the economy, 3.5% GDP numbers came out and the, the economy grew, you know, a little bit more. Um, and employment numbers are still up, but, you know, this this is less than it's normal. Um, is this the way to move into this way to, to kind of counteract elimination? What is there a way to counter it? Well, that's sort of the standard narrative. I think certainly Democrats, Clinton, Obama, et cetera, the standard sort of narrative has been, well, we can kind of educate ourselves out of this uh, problem, out of these economic problems on the argument that, well, a higher tech uh, uh, society simply just requires a higher level of education. You know, and I'm I'm deeply skeptical uh, of that basic narrative. I don't think we're going to educate our way out of this. Uh, for several reasons. For one, one, one reason, just right off the bat, is I think there's this assumption that a sort of higher tech society uh, necessarily uh, uh, requires or involves or or gives rise to uh, higher levels of education. You know, you know, higher tech society implies that, and I think we just look around us that that's true in many cases. But there are only so many cool jobs at Google and Facebook and so on. You know, um, I think for what for most people, high uh, high tech workplace means actually lower skills and de-skilling. So just as a quick example, um, I remember when I was a teenager and I had a job at a fast food place. We actually had these ancient cash registers. Um, where we would actually have to count out change, you know, to people, um, you know, when they bought something, um, just by knowing how to do that and, and using a little bit of math, not much, nothing to get excited about, but at least, you know, enough such that we're counting back change. But now in a, in a McDonald's or a, a sort of high-tech fast food environment, you just push a button, the change comes automatically. You don't even have to know when to stop when you're filling up a medium Coke, right? You just press the icon of the medium icon. And so that's higher tech, but it actually demands lower, you know, skill, lower uh, knowledge uh, of any kind. And so I think that's one, you know, one aspect of, of challenging that assumption. Um, so 
back in the Clinton administration, uh, Clinton Secretary of Labor Robert Reich, um, you know, wrote a book in which he uh, that sort of was widely read, in which he he said that well, in the future we're all going to become sort of knowledge workers and symbolic analysts and so on. Um, but I think what's we've realized is that there's because of the gains in productivity and so on that 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 whole sort of way of doing things implies, that's only going to be true of a very few, and I think a decreasing number of people. I think structurally, um, what we're doing is actually placing more and more people outside of the loop of the productive economy altogether, and setting the stage for what I call eliminationism, which is a very you know, dramatic, and I will admit to a, a little bit of hyperbole in using that term eliminationism, but I kind of want to shake people by the, uh, by the collar, you know, and, 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 and raise a, the alarm about this situation. What we're talking about here is basically, in your view, the economy is kind of playing out in a way or structured in a way that, say, like the 57% unemployed in Spain are simply being viewed as excess people and it would be better from the view of the elites in society if they just simply d- weren't there, that they're essentially being structured to be eliminated. Uh, to right. Disappear. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, one way to put it, um, you know, there's a quote from uh, English economist Joan Robinson that sort of inspired me uh, to write this. And she said, this was back in the 50s, she said, well, we've learned that there's only one thing worse than being exploited by the capitalists, and that is not being exploited by them, you know. Um, and so um, the traditional sort of left critique of of capitalism, the workplace, but also of the school system itself, and we can focus on that a little bit if you'd like, um, the traditional left critique is one of exploitation, right? That, if, And if we just look at the school system, the sort of left Marx-inspired critique of education the, traditionally has been that, well, th- what's obnoxious about factory-style schooling and, and, and today's uh, education system is that it's exploitative, right? It's, it's, it's excessively vocational. People are treated as means to an end, you know, the end being capitalist accumulation. And so it's sort of slave, you're in a slave-like position because you're only being educated for certain vocational needs through the formal curriculum, the subject matter being taught and also the hidden curriculum you know the things that are not on the lesson plan but that nonetheless you learn at school things like how to sit still how to take direction from a central authority how to orient your movements by a clock um, how to wait in line you know the how to show up on time how to show up not drunk which was actually a big deal in the early factory towns and early school systems um, stuff like that those are the kinds of things you learn that kind of give you the habits and dispositions and then also the skills from the curriculum itself like literacy and a certain spattering of basic knowledge that are going to make you more productive as workers and so the traditional left critique of education is that well that's exploited it because it's not really treating us as full humans you know in our full human dignity and that there should be broader aims to education things like perhaps citizenship you know which is not the broadest aim in the world but at least it's broader than just being a a drone in a factory somewhere um, citizenship or just pure uh, humanistic goals of uh, wanting to uh, create uh, people who are morally better, better types of people uh, uh, in some broad description that is 
perhaps agreed upon by some or not by others, but anyway, some, something broader. And so the traditional left critique is that, well, that exploitative system is the problem. But I think what we've seen now is that in a sort of perverse, unfortunate way, uh, in retrospect, those were the good old days. You know, it's like we should be so lucky to have that problem of exploitation. You know, you should be so lucky to have someone who wants to exploit you. And what we see now are are uh, whole uh, groups of people and leading edge being the young. And you mentioned Spain, you know, Greece, Spain, you know, if we're talking about the Western, you know, developed world, those places are the leading edge. But also I'd add people in the cities, you know, in the United States and so on. Um, th- those are the sort of leading edge of this whole raft of population that's essentially unemployable structurally unemployable and i don't see that condition going away because of changes in the nature of capitalism and this is why i have this title the falling rate of learning which is a play on uh uh, marx's uh theory of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall and uh i don't know how deeply we want to get into that but that has to do with the idea that because of technological changes, and this is all from Marx. We can everyone get out your hymnals, right? We can, we can do responsive reading uh, in the in the Marx Church here. Um, but it's in Volume Three of of Capital, and the idea, very very quickly in a nutshell, is that capital for Marx is made up of essentially uh, two parts. There's fixed capital, you know, which is like all the stuff, the factory, the machine tools, the the, the things that are used in production, but also what he called variable or I think a better term, human capital, which is the labor, you know, the living labor, the people who are working in the factories or in agriculture or wherever they're working. And so because of automation and the sort of technological arms race that goes on in terms of competition between firms uh, uh, trying to produce products for the lowest price and so on and so forth, what happens is that the composition of that capital changes. So Marx calls it the organic composition of capital, which I always found to be a little bit of a confusing phraseology, but it's just the ratio changes. So you have more of the fixed capital and less of the uh, uh, human capital involved in production. And so for Marx, profit itself comes from the human capital part of the equation. So profit has to do with extracting surplus labor from workers. You know, that's why you're employed because, uh, and you're getting a, getting a wage because they're giving you a wage not out of altruism or just to keep you afloat in your life, but they're giving you a wage because they're actually making profit. They're making more money by employing you then you're getting back in the wage they're paying you otherwise why would they employ you right so um anyway um given that change in the internal composition of capital that percentage of capital which is the profit yielding uh sector of section of capital that is the human capital part of it that keeps shrinking and shrinking and shrinking along with technological development automation and so on and so forth to where it shrinks ultimately to a vanishing point and so it becomes harder and harder for firms to make a buck you know to turn a profit under the good old competitive capitalist uh, scheme some of that may sound a little abstract but it's basically just the process of automation right that's been playing out yeah exactly and and that that's the beginning of the story yeah exactly that's that's what sort of generates these internal changes 
in the in nature of capital. But to me, the really interesting part of the story is um, what happens after that, because due to the uh, increasing difficulty in gaining a profit through the old-fashioned kind of 19th century capitalism way of extracting uh, profit out of labor and so on and so forth, the vampire capital that Marx talked about. There arise all these what he called counterforces that arise to, to find profit elsewhere. And so phenomena, large-scale phenomena that we see coming to fruition now in the last generation, such as globalization itself, where you seek ever farther and wider for cheaper and cheaper labor, right? The domestic labor becomes even too too expensive, even though it's a shrinking proportion. So you go to China or wherever where you can pay pennies on the dollar, right, to, to laborers uh, to make things. Um, financialization itself, as per this thesis, is a is a symptom, part of the symptomatology of this falling rate of, of profit, where more and more the profits in the economy these days are in the giant casino, right? And can you know check the economists will give us statistics where the big money is not in producing stuff, it's in playing these financial games where investment even isn't even really investment in the old sense of finding productive companies and startups and so on, the way investment is kind of theoretically supposed to be. It's more just pure casino, you know, bets. And so the money sloshing around in financialization leveraged by credit and debt bubbles. So that too is part of the symptom, symptom, symptomatology. And so, and for me, ultimately neoliberalism, that, which I would define very roughly as the zeal to marketize everything, um, that neoliberalism itself is sort of a symptom of, of, of one of these counterforces. It's a, it's a pushback against the inability of capitalism to function in that good old-fashioned sense that everyone thinks of as the virtues of, of capitalism, you know, working hard, innovating, and so on and so forth. Harder and harder to turn a buck in that arena. And so the money, the smart money, uh, flows into these uh, other arenas and other other avenues for pursuing profit, and sort of that's what's yielding the world that we're seeing now, at least in my view. And I ask all our nation's governors, I ask parents, teachers, and citizens all across America for a new nonpartisan commitment to education. Because education is a critical national security issue for our future, and politics must stop at the schoolhouse door. We must trust students to learn if given the chance, and empower parents to demand results from our schools. In neighborhoods across our country, there are boys and girls with dreams, and a decent education is their only hope of achieving them. Six years ago, we came together to pass the No Child Left Behind Act. The No Child Left Behind Act is a bipartisan achievement. It is succeeding, and we owe it to America's children, their parents, and their teachers to strengthen this good law. 
Research shows that one of the best investments we can make in a child's life is high-quality early education. So just as we worked with states to reform our schools, this year we'll invest in new partnerships with states and communities across the country in a race to the top for our youngest children. And as Congress decides what it's going to do, I'm going to pull together a coalition of elected officials, business leaders, and philanthropists willing to help more kids access the high-quality pre-K that they need. Tonight I can announce that with the support of the FCC and companies like Apple, Microsoft, Sprint, and Verizon, we've got a down payment to start connecting more than 15,000 schools and 20 million students over the next two years without adding a dime to the deficit. The nation that had put a man on the moon was finally going to fix education. And now it's up to you, the local citizens of our great land, to stand up and demand no child, not one single child in America is left behind. It was a bold promise. And to make good on that promise, the architects of No Child Left Behind decided to measure every student in the country. I understand taking tests aren't fun. Too bad. We need to know in America. We need to know whether or not children have got the basic education. So now it's eight years later, and we have four years left to reach our goal, 100% proficiency in math and reading. In Alabama, only 18% of eighth graders are proficient in math. And next door in Mississippi, it's only 14%. And it's not just southern states. New Jersey, 40%. Connecticut, 35%. New York, 30%. Arizona, 26%. And in California, just 24% of eighth graders are proficient in math. When eighth graders across the country were tested for reading, most scored between 20 and 35% of grade level. The worst scores for reading are in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. So you're a kid. You're doing fine in school till you hit the fourth grade, fifth grade. Between the fifth grade and the seventh grade, you see a huge number of minority kids go from being B students to D students. Now, one of two things is happening. Either the kids are getting stupider every year, right? Or something is wrong in the education system. But what do kids... What, so I'm, I'm 10, I've been a good student. I'm 11, I'm a C student, I'm 12, I'm a D student. What do you think I think is going on? And I'm looking now, let's say, I'm in the seventh grade. I'm going nowhere. You're listening to episode number 73 of The Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with David Blacker about his new book, The Falling Rate of Learning.
Okay, so exploiting labor, exploiting, <laughs> exploiting people for the for the profit. What yeah, are those were the good. Those were the good. Old, <laughs> those were the good old days. <laughs> yeah. And what are we experiencing now? How, how we've seen this automation kind of kick off. We've seen you know smartphones and technology kind of dominating the scenes. We've seen people losing their jobs all over the world, not only because of of technology, but of of the increasing you know low hanging fruit of innovation. Where where are we headed? What's our projections? Where where are we going with this this trend here? Well, I mean, I'm not a I'm not Nostradamus, right? So I would I always hesitate to make predictions. And in fact, maybe some would find it a big uh, uh, cop out. But as a, as a philosopher, better or worse, I always stick with Hegel's motto about philosophy, which is uh, perhaps disappointing. Um, which is that the owl of Minerva only flies at dusk. You know, meaning that well, wisdom is more in retrospect. And I would always urge people to distrust. Uh, certainly, a philosopher who claims to be able to prognosticate things. Sure, but these but, are the patterns. But, they're the yeah. patterns that you're seeing. You know, like, yeah. This but, has but let before. me extrapolate. But have, let me just said that because I just want to make sure that uh, whatever I say can't be held against me. Now, right? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I just want to inoculate myself from criticism. Um, so, but it, what I would say is, I you know, I think that this process, what we see is an increasing inequality of wealth distribution, right? So that's, that's one important feature. And so, and, and, and the statistics bear this out, you know, more and more concentration, the 1% or really more correctly, maybe the 0.01% or whatever, we're increasing just outrageous, unbelievable amounts of wealth concentration where I just read recently that I think in the United States, our wealth distribution is, in, is, is worse uh, than the Roman Empire, you know, was definitely goes against our self-image, right? But what what I think, and 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 again, back to Egypt in a way, because Egypt maybe gives us a little sort of uh, microcosm of 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 what 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 could could come from from all of this, and what is happening, I think, to to some degree, is that level of concentration of wealth that's resulting from these processes of globalization, this sort of global elite that's developing and sort of gaining more and more and more and more and more. And uh, is is generating and bound to generate a certain degree of social instability, and this is where we kind of get into the revolution discussion, because certain groups, those groups that are slated for eliminationism, as per my thesis, are I think faded, and I use a strong words in the book, faded. I think they're faded to be restive and to. Uh, 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 sort of uh, project a degree of uh, social instability, volatility, simply because of their placenesses. It's kind of revolt or, or die, really, uh, for them. And so, to me, that's one feature of the landscape that's hard to sort of uh, see an alternative to going forward with this increasing uh, maldistribution of, of wealth and increasing concentration in the hands of the few is... Uh, those who are locked out, which is an increasing proportion of the population, are going to be very, very unhappy and very uh, a source of great instability moving forward. And so protests in Greece and in Spain and Tahrir and uh, Occupy and London and Paris suburbs, all those things I see as a sort of a common phenomenon. The mainstream idea of the economy, the formal economy, hasn't necessarily collapsed by any means, but it's it shrunk in the amount of people who participate it. Yeah, and so you could say it's collapsed for certain segments right. of the population, especially youth disproportionately. 
Yeah. yeah. And so on that idea of eliminationism in looking at essentially as far as from the perspective of being, say, one of the elites of living entirely inside that system, um, it's kind of a Malthusian idea where it's like we have all of this population and they're not needed anymore. And I hear uh, a lot of ecologists, and these are themes from population ecologists, uh, mm-hmm. you know, on overpopulation and, and population issues, is thinking that way something that enables this in- idea of eliminationism that you're describing? Um, is there some kind of counter to eliminationism? Um, well, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a good question because it, you know, it, it does have those, uh, those, those features. Um, and, you know, I guess to me, I, I, the, I think the process is going to play itself out, um, whether we like it or not. Um, and I think for my money, we're back to the a situation that is, I think, captured in the, what used to be a, a catchphrase, uh, among leftist parties in Europe, which is from Rosa Luxemburg, around the the World War One, post World War One period in Germany, where she coined the this phrase socialism or barbarism. You know, um, where I think we're either going to descend into a certain type of social chaos, or we're going to devise strategies to reasonably uh, share this wealth or distribute it uh, more evenly. You know, uh, many sort of technological utopians, um, I think, uh, enacted visions uh, for some time. And we had these in the 70s a lot and so on, where gains in productivity, this general picture that gains in productivity are going to decrease the need for work and so on, that's been around for some time now. Um, But in the 70s, as I recall, it was somehow assumed that well, we'd just have to work one hour a day then, and we'd be on our hammocks, and we'd enjoy all this uh, leisure time. And so uh, there was sort of some kind of assumption that <clears throat> productive work would just be spread equitably somehow, which I think unfortunately ignores just basically all of political and social reality to make that assumption. Um, so uh, in terms of a counter potential counterforce to elimination. I, I guess I see what, uh, the only possibility that I can see. I guess logically, it would be advancing some kinds of strategies for redistribution of of work and therefore wealth uh, at the same time. You know, to kind of cash in on this productivity windfall uh, and allowing a greater number of uh, greater proportion of the population to, to cash in on it. And actually back to Egypt, you know, one thing I saw there that I thought was really, really interesting, and this is perhaps just a developing world thing. And Egypt was the first time I really traveled in, um, uh, that, uh, an area like that. But one thing I noticed that, you know, and it's a function of unemployment and so on and so forth, but there's definitely a different mentality about work there. You know, when I first got there, you know, my my usual custom is to carry my own bags, right? <laughs> you know, a suitcase and luggage and so on and so forth. And you know, it's very clear that in the air, from the moment you get off the plane to wherever you're going, with cabs, with with uh, various uh, uh, helpers in the airport and so on, you better have a roll of small notes ready because everyone wants to help you with every stage of everything. And you know, I, I think my assumption as a sort of, I don't know, Western progressive is that, oh, no, I don't want to exploit you, my good man. You know, I will carry my own bags. You know, but that's not how they see it. They see it as almost a selfish, sort of crabbed 
thing for me to carry my own bags because I'm just essentially How saying dare no. you not? How dare you not give us let us help yeah, you with your I'm stuff. too cheap cheap to give you a five pound note, you know, because <laughs> I want to carry my bag. And and that's viewed as almost antisocial behavior, right? And almost our what we tend to view, and I think a lot of, you know, environmentalists and so on, the sort of do-it-yourself mentality, you know, and so on, and rely on yourself, I guess, our rugged individualism in America. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing. Yeah, right? all that stuff is really antithesis to that approach where it's definitely a sense of spread the wealth. Like, so, for example, if you hire someone in Egypt to do a project, say just fix something in your house, you'll very often have that person and then their brother-in-law. And then their brother-in-law's, you know, friend, you know, will all show up to help on the project. And the person that you initially contracted with to fix the thing or whatever will then spread that to those other people, you know. And it's sort of this – they feel an obligation to bring on friends and relatives onto some work that they've got, you know. So there's – it seems like there's this imperative, a kind of mindset of spreading the wealth, you know, in that in that way, and I thought that was actually instructive, and that, that that's a mentality that that in our context I could see as being, you know, perhaps kind of salutary, you know, sort of uh, sort of helpful. Yeah, and and given and, the state of the economy today, that may be an adaptive strategy that ends up really becoming part of the culture over the next ten years because there's just no better option. And that's what people do to survive. And, and that takes us into talking about jobs and kind of the lack of meaningful vocations in today's economy. Because on one side, maybe you're somebody who sees these trends that you're talking about, and you're basically you know working on a computer all day, and you're working on technology and generating more technology. But yet, you see that feedback effect where by doing that, by working, say, on industrial automation, which I was an engineer on, I've, I've done, you know, automation projects. And uh, on a micro scale, you know, it can be really interesting and really engaging and you can earn a wage. But then on the macro scale, what that's doing is it's furthering this process of eliminationism. So how do you think about this, the idea of jobs and of meaningful work given these societal trends? Yeah, I guess it brings to what you just said brings to mind a, a a book that was popular in the 70s. I think it was by Schumacher called Economics as if People Mattered, you know. Um, and I know uh, John Michael Greer has, has referenced that book before. It um, was one of those sort of forgotten classics. And that, that to me, just the title alone kind of gives you a clue of uh, the mentality, you know, that, that perhaps is needed, you know, where you sort of design systems. I mean, Perhaps our, our very notion of efficiency is flawed, right? Where we would want to include, uh, you know, not just some goals, but we would want to include a, a wider range of goals of what we care about. Because, you know, what is efficiency, right? If you, if you think about it, efficiency is uh, adequation, maximum, I guess, optimizing the adequation of means to given a given end, you know, um, and that's essentially what efficiency is. But but what of the end? You know, uh, uh, how do the ends get chosen? And perhaps uh, uh, what we need to worry about is a sort of illicit selectivity in the ends or goals or purposes that we've assigned to projects like automation, <laughs> industrial automation, and so on, where we want to think in terms of 
a wider range of, of desiderata, of things that human beings that we desire for ourselves, for our communities, for each other, and so on and so forth, and not just sort of give away to the game to whoever's funded the project, <laughs> you know, in, in, in terms of the particular, specific, narrow, perhaps, end that that uh, funder has, has assigned uh, to the project. Um, we see this, if I could make a parallel to the school system, in the notion of uh, accountability itself. You know, accountability is a huge buzzword in education, in education policy. It's all the rage. And it's one of those great words that, um, you know, is a, is a great word like freedom or, 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 or safety or whatever. It's hard to be against it, right? Because if you say, oh, I'm against the accountability regime in education, or I'm against accountability it makes it sound like you're crazy. Like, well, what are you for? You're for irresponsibility or, you know, laziness. It's the Patriot or... Act, basically, of education. Right, yeah, exactly. The Patriot Act is a perfect <laughs> example. It's the, you know, baseball, apple pie, and Chevrolet, you know, USA number one, you know, act. So, um, but but accountability, that, and so, you know, the PR campaign is, is very nicely orchestrated for these things. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if you look at the naming of laws, you know, it's sort of an Orwellian uh, exercise. They're all named things like this but but anyway uh in education with accountability we see that very process of what i call an i would call an illicit selectivity of of ends so what accountability means is not what i think most of us would think of as accountability in education it means accountability to a certain very narrow range of skills having to do with numeracy, literacy, perhaps. That's what's tested in the big federal policy uh, initiatives that are, that are valued by uh, elites or a certain segment of the population, or even valued by uh, many of us, or if not most of us. The problem is not necessarily that those things are valued. You know, literacy, who's against literacy? Um, who's against numeracy? The problem is that those values that 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 are uh, uh, that that we want from our education system are selected out of the equation of accountability. So, you know, on the assumption that we are complicated creatures, education is a complicated process necessarily. In the broadest sense, it's social reproduction in general, right? It's 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 reproducing in the next generation all the things that. Uh, we, uh, the adults, have decided are valuable and that we put into our, our curriculum and, and our schooling practices uh, and so on. I think for that is actually what this is about. I mean, Justin asked you in the last question about uh, like good jobs, having productive yeah. jobs, having something that's meaningful for you. But in many countries around the world, job is not something that really defines you as much as it does in the West. In this country, in, in the United States, and I think in a lot of westernized countries, the job – well, not in Europe, but in, in the United States for sure – the job is what defines your personality. It is, it is who you are. I, I was talking with my dental hygienist today. I was getting my teeth cleaned, and she just talked about all of her job the whole time, how, how much she loves her employees and how she has no time to do anything else outside of her job and how she can't take a vacation because she has to to work all the time and she's just so happy to be in her job now given <laughs> she has been working in this job for three years and she's just been, been, been a, a stay-at-home mom for most of her life but this is something that, well, that might explain I see. her joy yeah i'm sure bit. but yeah. you know I, I see someone like my father who has worked for 30 years and is now into the part of his life where he's beginning to think about retiring and he just cannot let go of that identity of that this is me. I'm this worker man who makes money for my family. This is how I have to do. This is what I have to do. 
And it's this mentality of, of working that people just cannot let go of. They cannot back up and say, I'm a person besides my job. I am a person that can have leisure time who does, does not have to be constantly productive for for my life. I can Yeah, that's, I an, can that's a really interesting point. And it makes me realize that, well, how does that you know, come to pass, you know, uh, how, how is that attachment of, of self to vocation sort of affected? And certainly it has deep roots in our education system itself, right? Where we're kind of the, the kind of vocationalized nature of our, of our education system kind of leads us to, to feel this way. I think about ourselves in, in many respects. Um, yeah, I mean, this idea that you've got to have the that fulfillment in your life, fulfillment in your job are sort of one and the same. You know, um, that we must have not only a job, but perfect fulfillment. I mean, part of me, when I when I think of that, I think of the, uh, uh, you know, on Reddit, the crying woman, you know, the first world problems woman uh, on Reddit. Yeah, it's sort of like my job isn't 100 percent fulfilling, you know, sort of the first world, you know, problem, you know, that you have a job, but it's not fulfilling. Go to Egypt, you know, and and they're not going to shed a lot of tears for your lack of fulfillment, you know. Um, But uh, yeah, but but this this sense of ourselves as as sort of being you know worthless and so on if we don't have that job that definitely compounds things psychologically and I think leads to a lot of sort of pathologies in the, in the in the system where that's kind of been the ideology for so long and if you combine that my goodness with with the lack of jobs and eliminationism and so on you get these very dire sort of uh, I don't know psychic distress among people one person I know you've talked to who I love uh, listening to everything he says is Dmitry Orlov right and when he talks about the former Soviet Union collapse and the leading cause of death there was not directly related to uh, scarcity of food or shelter or uh, so on. It was alcoholism, right? And and uh, the sense of that people had that uh, at least this is how he you know portrays it. That the sense that people had that their life had no meaning anymore. You know that they just sort of you know it's over now. You know my sense of worth as a human being and as a man. There's a kind of uh, patriarchal story to tell there as well. I think as part of this, my sense as a provider, as a man, that that's no longer there. And so sort of the psychological rug has been yanked out from under me. Um, and I no longer have value, you know, as a, as a human being, uh, you know, it's tough. It, you know, I, th- I think one sort of heroic gesture from our educational past that most of your listeners probably wouldn't know about is there's a debate from the it was back in the 1930s a guy named Snedden David Snedden he in a, some debate about education reform he uh, he he asked the question you know he tried to sort of turn the tables and talking about schools and said well usually the question that gets asked of the schools you know by corporations by the quote unquote business community um, is well what have you done for us you know how can you reform yourselves you being the schools how can you reform yourselves to 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 give us workers that have the skills we need you know all this stuff which is the kind of thing we hear and he said well how about this how about if you if we the educators and the education community why isn't it legitimate for us to ask of you, the business community, how about if you create jobs that are worthy of the human beings that we'd like to produce? You know, reverse the equation. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, and, I know that's utopian crazy talk, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how, how can you run a capitalist global economy on an idea like that? So, <laughs> as if people mattered, right? Right. So, um, so we're gonna have to wrap up here in a, in a few minutes, sure. but I wanted to ask about the idea of an educator in this system because you, you brought up how Dmitry Orlov discussed alcoholism in the Soviet collapse. And what we've been seeing in the United States as the system has been failing is antidepressant use. And the amount of people are depressed who exhibit some form of depression and the amount of antidepressant drugs and medica uh, medications that are being used in the society. I mean, it's unbelievable the, the scope of how these have been disseminated out into our society. And it really is that kind of broad spiritual void that I think a lot of people feel because so many aspects of the society were constructed around an idea of consumerism and so many incentives and systems were set up to enable that. And now that it's failing for various ecological and social reasons, you know, it's gone. It's like there's nothing there. And how do you, you know, be a part of that? Because for so long, as you mentioned, being exploited was was kind of the goal. And it was in some ways really terrible, but in some ways it was really great because if you got that wage, you could go and buy all of these things made all around the world and, you know, uh, constantly new things and getting that new thing. Yeah, this uh, cornucopia of consumerism. Yeah, it, it, it fulfills yeah. like these deep aspects of, of biology inside us and um, to some extent. And so now that that's failing and now that we're inside this failing system, um, what does it mean to be an educator in that? And how do you be inside the school system? Because so many people target the idea of reform, of reforming the school system. Um, how, how do you see yourself in it? And what advice do you have to maybe other educators at uh, you know, elementary school, high school, or, or college level? Well, gosh, that's a tough question, right? It's a very personal question. It's a tough question, and and uh, you know, many of my many of my best friends are educators, right? As, as <laughs> I am, and relatives, and so on and so forth. At all different levels of uh, school systems and university systems, and so on and so forth. And you know, I guess there's two things. I mean, one, um, you know, there is a sense in which one is. Uh, uh, trapped in these institutions, like others are trapped in corporate institutions and and uh, agribusiness institutions, and so on and so forth. And the heroic gesture is simply not uh, available to, to 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 many people. And so, I guess you cope. You know, you cope the best you can. I actually talk about this some uh, a little bit in the book. Um, but so there are various coping strategies for individuals within those systems. But also, I would say the experiments. Um, you know, we sort of talked about shock doctrine a little bit uh, before, but I think that uh, there are extra systemic uh, experiments that are extremely valuable too, if thought of in a certain way. So within education, for example, there are all kinds of interesting things going on around uh, homeschooling. Um, there are uh, interesting uh, educational experiments that have been ongoing for generations, things like Waldorf schools, uh, Summerhill School in England, which is a very progressive uh, education school um, that I visited uh, and spent some time with uh, and, and was, was really, really uh, impressed and, and charmed with. Um, the problem, though, is that these alternative experiments are really unlikely to be scalable in any meaningful way within the present context. And so, however, my position is that bec just because they're not scalable doesn't mean they're valuable. Because I, I think thinking in sort of oppositional shock doctrine terms, I guess, I think that 
we're very likely to face some sort of wrenching social cataclysm. Um, and here's where I guess I'm a little bit of a doomer uh, in some respects, because many of the things you've talked about on your on your show, uh, economic uh, collapse, uh, in my view, uh, generated by these internal contradictions that I've talked some about, um, but also climate change and uh, energy descent uh, scenarios. Any one of those uh, things would be enough to uh, cause sufficient wrenching cataclysms, certainly to our education system in various ways and probably to the whole society as, uh, in general. Um, those experiments sort of outside the, uh, uh, the, 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 the present system, the, scale, the scaled systems that we have, those experiments, I think, are not valuable because they're scalable, but I think they're valuable in future scenarios, to quote David Holmgren, I guess, future scenarios. They're valuable in future scenarios when having those kinds of efforts lying around on the ground for us to take up and perhaps learn something from will be given a boost if we have the head start of having some experience with those things. And that would include things like permaculture and so on outside of education. So mistake to think that just because it's not scalable, you know, I don't think you engage in, in permaculture. And I live on a farm and I'm, you know, trying to learn um, as much about that as I can. Um, but I don't think you, 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 you feel that, oh, it's a failure because it's a, permaculture is a failure if Monsanto doesn't embrace it, you know. Um, uh, I think permaculture is, is, is planning for the future, you know, a future that's, that's I think, coming uh, despite anyone's uh, best efforts or our, uh, or, or our volition. I think, I think that uh, these systems are, are fated to, to take on a certain trajectory. Um, and I guess I join those like John Michael Greer uh, and others who feel that really the main question we're talking about is timing here. Um, and the timing of, of, of these these situations, if we can sort of, you know, give ourselves a little more time and elongate the time horizons, that's a key factor in our survival. I mean, collapse, uh, uh, if it's sudden, time horizons are all important, right? Collapse, if it's sudden versus if it's elongated, and, uh, that's, a, that's a huge difference. That's the difference between survivability and non-survivability, I think. Do you think we should all just become stoics? Is that, do you think that's the way out of this? Well, I think that's an important uh, lesson to learn. And, you know, I, I do. When I say Stoicism, I'm, I'm referring to a uh, school of thought from ancient Greece, uh, ancient Rome, philosophers like Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, and I quote Seneca, who is a, a Roman uh, thinker a lot in the that, that last chapter of my book, where uh, Stoicism has to do with a certain attitude of resignation toward fate, resignation toward things that are simply going to happen. And so, uh, you know, in the largest sense, the thing that's going to happen to all of us is mortality, right? And, you know, if we, if we think about collapse issues and so on, you know, you know, in some respects, facing collapse is simply a collective sort of representation of what we individually all face in terms of mortality, you know, our own finitude and coming to grips with, 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 with this, with this situation for ourselves personally. You know, that's one truth. We're all mortal. You know, we're, we're going to die. Sorry to say, spoiler alert, you know, for the audience out there. You know, it's going to happen to all of us. Um, and so stoicism has a lot to do with trying to develop a, 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 an acceptance of, of this situation that, that we're in, I would say. 
That's what's important. You know, we should save the Amazon because we might get some medicinal plants. You know, and I say someone who takes a pill that's derived from a Brazilian snake, uh, the venom of a Brazilian snake because of high blood pressure. You know, so I, I'm invested in that, you know, but this, this idea that, you know, the, the, these things are only valuable insofar as they can relate back to, to human beings, that we're all, we're the lords of beings, you know, we're, we're the lords of being, where everything's always related back to us. And I think a narrative like uh, stoicism um, can help sort of decenter that uh, that narrative, and we can recognize ourselves more fully um, as one being among uh, other beings. Now, I know that's very abstract, and we're toward the end of the conversation. <laughs> I had a, a guy here in the studio uh, at the radio station where I record these interviews on the campus of the University of British Columbia, and he was in this studio, and I was getting set up, and he was like, oh, so what are you about to do? And I was like, well, we're going to interview uh, a guy named David Blacker, and he's a philosopher, and he wrote a book about education. And, and the guy here, he goes, oh, education, how do we make it better? And I was like, well, kind of the idea in his book is that it's not going to get better. And he just goes, that's depressing. And <laughs> Well, I think it's only depressing if you think in terms of, well, what we need to make better is the current school system. You know, I think the education reform and most of what's talked about in education policy, it's just sort of a mirage, you know, kind of a diversion. And I I think that, you know, in one respect, you could say it's a matter of target selection. You know, I don't think that we're going to reform schools to address these problems. I think what, what's, what we need to think in terms of is, is starting to imagine post, uh, I'd say, let's say collapse, for lack of a better word, systems of schooling that are going to make sense in that environment. Um, so I, you know, if you think, I think of our present school system, it's, it's like a sandcastle on the, on the beach at uh, low tide, you know, where we, we could talk about, you know, making the castle look better and so on and so forth and adding little, you know, aspects to the castle. But the tide's coming in, you know, and I would much rather think about what we're going to do post tide, you know, than, than working on the, the castle that we have now for the simple reason, too, that I think it distracts. It distracts our attention from social inequalities that are out there. I think thinking that ed- we can educate our way out of this distracts us from the climate problems that we have, the energy problems that we have. Our present school system, for example, is absolutely dependent on a certain system of, in the United States, bus transport, HVAC, you know, that all implies cheap energy that's going to keep going forever and ever and ever. And I think I, I would much rather think in, in terms of post the, the current school system than simply uh, improving what we have, because I think the structural dynamics in the economy that are also driven in large part by energy and, and, and ultimately I think will be affected by climate dramatically and are already in many ways. Those structural dynamics are really what are driving education. And so, you know, all these reforms, the ideologies, the rhetoric, like we heard from Obama and the State of Union address, those things are really just kind of uh, uh, illusory. They're sort of effervescent. Um, and they're not, at the end of the day, going to combat these economic trends that, 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 that we have to face. And I think ultimately those things are going to take down the present school system in its present form. And if that sounds depressing, I don't know, it's glass half empty, half full. You know, is that really depressing? You know, perhaps, perhaps not.
And that wraps up our conversation with David Blacker and also our side A conversation with Frank Rotering on ideas of revolution in the context of the modern eliminationism, as David Blacker calls it. And it was really interesting in putting these two interviews together and listening to them as I got ready to stitch them into the same episode because there's so many themes that echo on one another between what Frank was talking about and between what David was talking about that I didn't even know about when we even scheduled these conversations that ended up happening a few months apart. One thing I wanted to bring up that we didn't really get into with either of them. We talked about it a little bit with Frank, but it's basically having to do with the taboo surrounding open, honest discussions about power and revolution. The challenge with talking about it is even that it is a taboo and it sets off so many alarms as David was telling us about in Egypt and even beginning to think of yourself as a potential revolutionary is in itself a 1984 like thought crime where I really do think that a lot of the you know, nation states in the in today's world are actually thinking that given the trends that are leading towards societal instability, the kind of trends that Frank is looking at and seeing, you know, he was saying that basically social upheaval is inevitable at this point. So kind of pick what you want it to do. You can build it into something that results in a sane economy, or you can just let it unravel into complete insanity. I think our governments are seeing those trends and they're preparing for it. You know, that's what the whole NSA spying thing is all about, all of the monitoring and surveillance. It's an interesting thing to think of yourself as a revolutionary, to reclassify yourself, as you will, from, say, student or, you know, hospital employee, doctor or lawyer to revolutionary. This is a full-time job. It's a rethinking of a mindset that for most people in most of their lives don't really think about. They don't constantly look to themselves as an agent of change in their own lives. They usually are passive observers of what happens around them. The government is something that is a, is a active changer in their life. The police force comes in and enforces the laws that the government sets down. And it's our job as passive observers of these policies in our lives to just comply. And when you take on the responsibility of a revolutionary, of somebody who is actively involved in their own lives, who is going down to Tahrir Square and setting up a tent or chanting out a slogan or you know going down to Occupy Wall Street in, in the United States, you become a part of your own destiny, if you will, a part of your own fate lands in your own hands and you think about what it is that your life means and what your life is about. And we heard about Egypt and the, and the way that those folks effectively changed a government. To change out a dictator who's been around for decades is a really powerful thing. And for people to realize that they have the power to change their own lives, to change their own governments is a very empowering thing. I mean, the tension that I have there is to implement the kind of revolution that Frank is talking about. It makes sense if you've really understood and grasped the consequences of the ecological crisis. And the difficulty I see is that the revolution and mindset still needs to occur because even ideas of green capitalism, which I would say maybe had a shot back in the 70s, you know, to make some form of transition to a green capitalism and it didn't happen, 
And now we really do need a completely different economic logic. I'm completely in agreement with Frank on that. Even talking about a green capitalism to most people is extremely revolutionary in its mindset. And so going from green capitalism into uh, something that's even deeper of a mindset change is very difficult. So what I see is the need for continued education and dialogue on these issues, including the nature of the ecological crisis, so that people truly understand what we're up against. And that's so much of why we do these shows is simply to hopefully provide people with some tools to see all of these forces that are playing out in their lives. Otherwise, maybe they wouldn't be able to make those connections. As we are moving into these revolutionary phases that our world is headed towards, it's important to rethink the whole philosophy around many of the systems that we're looking to change. We heard from Frank about how it is important to change the whole logic system, to think about the whole logical system around capitalism in the same way that we heard from David Blacker around thinking about the job situation, how, what it is to work for a large corporation, the exploitation that happens in the workforce every day that we don't even realize or that we take for granted as being normal. It's not something that is a given and it's not something that we always need to have built into our systems. So as we move around the deck chairs on the Titanic, which is moving down, you know, changing out our, our government or changing out our leaders, we need to think about the whole Titanic itself. The fact that the Titanic is in fact going down and that our society would benefit greatly from us changing the direction or the shape of that boat. Yeah, absolutely. And, and some of these forces are so big and broad, they're going to happen no matter what we do. And so it's thinking very delicately about positioning yourself and working with other people as you were saying, Seth, as that kind of Titanic is on that path, figuring out, you know, where you want to be in order to do something about it. And it's a real challenge. It's, it's definitely a tension for me in navigating that seeing myself as like a passive you know, person that it's like, oh, I'm trapped on the ship no matter what. And seeing myself as someone with a bit of agency in that larger process. And so I think that's a that's a tension that everybody has to navigate. And jumping into just a few news items before we close out on today's show, um, one of the things we hit on in our conversation with David that you just brought up, Seth, was basically this idea of jobs and of a vocation. And so this was a, a link that Josh posted, and it's an article in Slate Magazine that I'm going to link to in the show notes as all of the links that we discuss here. And it's called In the Name of Love, Elites Embrace the do what you love mantra, but it devalues work and hurts workers. And it gets into this idea of pursuing your passion and doing what you love and loving what you do. And this idea that we've developed in especially North America, I don't know how prevalent it is in other parts of the world, but I hear it all the time, especially being at a university environment that you work in an environment that it doesn't even feel like work because you love doing it. And I feel very fortunate to be in a position like that. I definitely feel that way. But it's such a privilege that I think so few people in the world get to have. And I also think it's a privilege that the people who do have it don't understand necessarily what it means. Because I see it as basically having blood on my hands in many ways to be a little bit provocative. You know, I think about my unemployment or underemployment footprint that surrounds even the ability to make hardly any money being at an academic institution. The privilege of even having that opportunity is incredible. And like all the people who work really hard, you know, and pay tax dollars and other things to even enable an institution like that to exist is definitely part of the equation that really never enters into the conversation. And that's a little bit of what the Slate Magazine piece is talking about. We talk on this show 
show a lot about how your job is not who you are. And for many people out there, that is the case. You know, these folks who work the nine to five jobs or that work the, you know, the late shift or the, the early, early morning shifts who don't like their job or think that they, they could do something differently in their lives. These people are not defined by their jobs. They're defined by the music they play and by the books that they read and by the friends that they spend time with or the plants that they grow. These are not people who identify with their work and they frankly could care less about their job. And to put the emphasis on working towards a job that you love is the ultimate goal in our modern day society really devalues what many, many people in the in the lower and poorer classes do. I see, you know, even the janitorial staff that's in my building full of, you know, graduate students and researchers and stuff. And frankly, they should make just as much as we do in terms of wages. Oh, they probably do actually as much as a graduate student wage, but they should make more than we do because they enable the whole thing to even happen and the whole thing to work. And so the Slate article is getting at the problem that's especially prevalent in academia because what you were just talking about, Seth, because so many people are pursuing that and they think that it is the goal to do what you love, then they throw themselves. I see this in so many cases. People throw themselves at getting additional degrees and getting further education and further into debt in in the modern society. Just that one more degree and you'll be on the path to happiness. The do-what-you-love idea that they're bringing up in the article is one that actually furthers the process of exploitation that David was discussing today because it means that if you're in a job that you love and you must love it, right, because you're there, that you work so hard that it blurs the lines between turning off and leaving your job and having a family and having time with people outside of work that you really care about. And I see so many people who get caught in that trap. Sometimes when you start off doing something that you love, say you've been shooting video for your whole life and, you know, you've been starting making little videos from when you're the age of five all the way up to like now, you know, you're working in, in a major institution doing video. That hobby that you used to have, that passion that you used to have has become monetized. It's something now that you have to go every day to work and do. Mm-hmm. And it becomes not very fun anymore. It becomes something that it's like work. And when your passion becomes work, it, it's it's kind of disheartening and you have to look outside of yourself to find new passions. And that's, that's mm-hmm. also one of those those booby traps of finding what you love to do that actually is work. So you have to find many things that you love to do, I think, is what the, the ultimate point of that is. <laughs> yeah, I think that's definitely one way of looking at it and having such a, you know, a permaculture approach to your hobbies and the ways that all of your different activities flow into each other. And maybe that's one way of helping to avoid it. There's no real easy answer in these things. But I think part of it is understanding the importance of, you know, the the baker and the candlestick maker and everybody else who's doing a lot of the drudgery in life and realizing that there's some real dignity in that and not projecting on that any sort of air of, uh, you know, uh, prestige necessarily because you're in a privileged position and, and also just acknowledging that privilege. But that takes us into one last article where people are having people in positions of privilege, in positions of extreme privilege, are finding themselves increasingly under distress and increasingly alienated because they are under attack in so many aspects of society and um, they're finding themselves increasingly alienated. And this is a Politico article called Why the Rich Are Freaking Out. And it's about how basically the the 1% as identified by the Occupy movement 
are increasingly anxious because they feel that there's a revolutionary spirit a little bit in the air. The rich people of this world, the people with all the power, the people who hold the influence in our current version of our economy, these are the folks that have the most to lose. Dmitry Orlov actually forecasted this very fact a while ago. He was saying that these people with the most to lose, the people that are the most wealthy, the most, the farthest to fall, are actually the most at risk in these kind of economic slowdowns. People that are close to the bottom, they don't have that that far to fall. You know, they fall off and they're just like, oh, well, now I just don't have that extra bowl of rice that I, I'm used to. Now I can just, you know, make do with one bowl of rice instead of two. But people who are eating like filet mignons and driving their Ferraris, they're not going to be able to do that as much. They're not going to be able to buy those filet mignons, and they're not going to be able to fill up their Ferrari at the gas station. Well, maybe they are, but it's going to cost half their paycheck, which will also be a lot smaller. Yeah, and all your social relationships and your identity and your status is tied up in the extreme wealth that you have. And so to fall from a state where you have a lot of money and you can just spend it without thinking into you know a situation that I think most people are in in the United States today where money is a very serious issue and you know you're very close to kind of sliding off the financial ladder if you miss you know a week's paycheck or something and that's such a huge psychological shift that the extreme oh, it's huge. wealth to go through. Yeah, it's huge, Justin. And and Dimitri actually said that these folks, instead of actually moving into that poor space where they have to give up their Ferraris, they'd rather just die. They'd rather commit suicide and, and just and just die. It actually brings up another interesting article, Justin, about the string of suicides that have been happening in the financial world. This article, which we'll we'll have a link to in our show notes, just shows how over the month of January, at the end of January, there were three cases of suicides of people who work in finance. And it's really highlighting this thing that Dmitry Orlov was talking about. And January was a rough month for global financial markets. And looking at the trends of the unwinding of emerging market bubbles, like we've talked about on our show with people like Michael Hudson, and all of these things, you know, maybe they're completely unrelated. And they've all happened in a bad month for global financial markets, and they've all happened to people in finance. I think they're seeing all of these trends, and they're saying, oh my God, you know, we're really on the precipice of a potential financial crash. And who's to say if it happens, I really think that governments are going to intervene no matter how bad the a, a financial crash gets. But that just means more suffering and more terrible rule changes that screw regular people over if that were to happen. Yeah, and everyone's going to be looking to these economists saying, what, what happened? Why didn't you predict this? Why didn't, why didn't you tell us this 20 years ago? And so we just continue this trend of lurching from crisis to crisis and not fixing the underlying structural difficulties and not being honest with the society. You know, our elites are not honest with us about the level of magnitude of change that has to occur and also are not willing to take a loss themselves. And so the loss is then passed on to regular people who weren't the architects of the system and who you know, necessarily are just pushed around and screwed over no matter what happens. But people who are looking ahead and really value the extra environmentalist for the kinds of lengthy, in-depth conversations that were on our show today are people like Matt in Canada, who donated to our show recently. So thank you, Matt. Also, Jeff in Colorado. Thank you so very much for the generous contribution, Jeff. And also Clive in Georgia, which we are extremely grateful to you, Clive and Jeff and Matt and all of the people who donate to us one time or regularly or even interact with us online or send us emails or make so many contributions to our show that cannot be measured in dollars because that's really what the Extra Environmentalist is all about. But 
sometimes we have to get audio equipment or send microphones, and that does require money. And so we are grateful to have a little bit of cash that we can use to help improve the production quality of the show. And Clive also mentioned that he's enjoying the back episodes, the back catalog of The Extra Environmentalist, which is freely available on the internet. You can find that on iTunes. You can find that on extraenvironmentalist.com. And you can find that on SoundCloud, where you can view all the recent and not so recent episodes download them, mix them up, do whatever the heck you want with them. It's all free, all Creative Commons stuff, so you can mix and match till your heart is content. You can also find us on Facebook where the conversation continues just 24-7. There's always new articles, new pictures, new interesting links going up where you too can join the conversation, like all the things that Justin and I post up there, and really you know, be a part of the conversation. You can also find us on Twitter at XEnvironmental, where the tweets just don't stop. <laughs> They do stop all too often because I just don't have time to tweet sometimes. But it's great to hear from all the people who listen to the show, whether that's through Facebook, Twitter, or through voicemail by calling plus one nine one nine seven zero one ninety seven two from any North American phone for our voicemail inbox, or you can reach us via Skype at The Extra Environmentalist from anywhere in the world. And I wanted to highlight a live event that we have coming up in Vancouver, British Columbia on February the 25th in partnership with the Post Carbon Institute. It's going to be on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash extra environmentalist with Richard Heinberg on his new book, Snake Oil. He's going to be giving a talk at the University of British Columbia on the evening of February 25th out here on on the west coast of North America. And so I'm going to be there filming it and live streaming it to our YouTube channel. So we're going to be posting the full event time and details on our YouTube page. So be sure to check it out on YouTube. So get out there and find your own personal revolution. thinking is that the big revolutions in the world have to do with the internal contradictions of Marxist-Leninism, but it may actually be that Marxist-Leninism was a kind of partner in a codependent relationship with consumer capitalism, and maybe revolution is just going to become something that everybody is into. God knows, we could use a perestroika. I mean, we too are ruled by constipated, lying bureaucrats who, you know, what, what are the statistics that 97% uh, of all incumbents are re-elected, that there is less turnover in the uh, United States Congress than there was in the higher echelons of the Communist Party of East Germany until the wall came down. I mean, we love to congratulate ourselves on the forward-leaning uh, liberal society that we live in, and the truth is, you know, it's a bunch of rattlesnake-handling fundamentalists that are much closer to Stalin than they are to FDR or anybody else like that. Still, I, I think that 
the culture crisis is going to become so intense and the world is going to become so weird. Probably every civilization that has gone through a twilight has had groups of concerned, uh, comfortable people who have met in rooms to decry the approaching catastrophe. You know, I'm sure that at, when Rome fell, there were people who said, you know, we see what it is, the bad tax policies, the barbarians at the border, these religious cults. Uh, it's just it's not safe to walk the streets anymore. Uh, and yet fell she did. And this always happens. So I, I, don't, I don't know. It bothers me to think that we could perhaps trigger... See, what's most fragile is democratic values. And I'm pretty confident that the human race is going to survive in some form or another. But all we have to do is hit one speed bump... And democratic values, which are already under tremendous assault, will just go down the drain. episode of the extra environmentalist we're talking about the societal patterns that create addictions and addictive behavior in people's lives with stanton peel and charles eisenstein probably where aa was created in 1935 and they wrote the big book because some people to say well nobody could quit addiction before them which is goes to show how self-centered we are how deluded we are people have quit addictions throughout the history of the world and one way to look at addiction or any addictive substance is a way to not feel pain or not face some painful situation Environmentalist presents Exciting Jobs of the 21st Century. Server farm janitor. As a server farm janitor, I am responsible for cleaning up all the dust that these servers make. And boy, let me tell you, these servers make a lot of dust. Oh man, it gets hot in here. Holy smokes, the heat in here gets so bad, I almost have to take off my shirt. The chemicals they give me to clean up these server farms are pretty great. They open up my sinuses and save me lots of money on medical care. That's a good thing because I only get paid $2 an hour. Exciting jobs like this one await you in the 21st century economy. Jobs like the Amazon drone loader. Turn left, walk right. I've been working at Amazon as a drone loader for about three years now. And Pretty much every action from the time I get out of bed to the time I go to sleep at night is optimized by Amazon's patented drone loading efficiency program that plays on my headset, regulating every action I make. Open your eyes now. Judging by the amount of excrement in your colon, a bathroom break should take you no more than 4.8 minutes. Begin now. From the time I wake up to the time I make it to work, the drone loading program has already told me 
about 500 things to do, whether that's drinking my coffee. The optimal amount of caffeine for today's workload is seven cups of coffee. Begin now. To making it all the way to work and relating to my coworkers. The drone says, have a good day. Try not to jump out the window like his friend did at the Foxconn factory. My life has become one drone-driven nightmare. You drone on and on. Get back to work. Your break of 5.2 minutes is over. There are drones to load and widgets to sell or risk termination. The efficiency has gone to a whole new level. I'm just not sure I'm ready for it. Our continued business model requires you to have 4.3 children. The drone loader on aisle three thinks you're cute and wants to buy you dinner. Will you accept? And in addition to Amazon drone loading, you could be employed in agriculture. Just like our exciting, confined animal feeding operations, cow anus inspectors. I inspect about 300 anuses a day. These are big anuses and small anuses. Man, I am responsible for cleaning these things and making sure they're tip-top shape to get to market. If a cow is underweight, I have to hit it with the bovine growth hormone. This growth hormone has the side benefit of all the misinjections I've given myself. At this rate, I'm on the track for the NFL or another professional bodybuilding league. Hey, Arthur, get out of the warehouse. There's a baseball scout here to see you. Well, gotta go. My major league career is around the corner. If you don't want to be in technology, in retail, or food, you can be in manufacturing. Due to all the riots being suppressed all around the world, Investments in water cannon technology have reached a new golden age. The American manufacturing boom is underway, and water cannon employment is needed. But the prices are low for water cannons, so we need to extract that extra value from labor. Though it's taken a few reforms in the federal laws around youth employment, now you can start your career earlier than ever, and a new golden age of youth employment has been born. My hands are perfect for the water cannon assembly. Although my title says I'm a water cannon assembly slave, I like to think of myself as a real employee. Sometimes they even give me some money to play with. I order a burger from an Amazon drone and it just flies it in here and I get to eat it. It's so good. So study hard and buckle down. These exciting career opportunities await you and your children in the magic of the 21st century. It's like a big super soaker, except it knocks you down and makes your breath go away and sometimes it makes your eyes fall out of your head and it's not very fun.